happy Saturday. It is March 6th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. Michael, is this the Ides of March? When is that? That's in like nine days. That's the 15th of March. All right, we'll get to the Ides of March next week. But here we are. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Happy March. Happy March. Michael, have you had the jab yet? No, and I'm just telling you, I'm getting a little crabby about it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I know I shouldn't be. I should be a more magnanimous person. I'm magnanimous, but I'm just going to tell you, I know people well below my age who have gotten it. So do I. Apparently in New Jersey, a lot of millennials are saying they were former smokers and they're getting it that way. Apparently that's a comorbidity. I know people from New Jersey going to Brooklyn to get it. How so? Okay, I, I don't want to give people up, but I'm like, really? And then it's just like Connecticut's got better rules. Everything's like, and all of a sudden I'm like, I feel like, like what? So I'm getting a little frustrated. No kidding. Well, look, our moment will come, Michael. Our moment will come. Anthony Fauci said so, so it must be true. Okay, let me just ask you. Yeah? Alessandra had the thing a couple of weeks ago when she was on the show about being the smug vaccinator. Right, the people who are all excited. Oh, they are. And now I feel like the next wave of sort of like how people are going to be sort of put in different slots is like, oh, you got vaccinated, but oh, oh, you got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. There are always ways to create more social stratification, Michael. Exactly, and that's what's going on. Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer is is what you want. Yeah, Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer is like the Chanel of the vaccine. Okay, so you say you sign up for your appointment and, and you get there, like, and you see like the on cork and it says Johnson and Johnson. What do you do? Get snobby. Ask if there are any alternatives. Would you say, I'll come back? <laughs> no, no. Personally, no. I'll take whatever whatever they want to shoot in my arm. I'm ready. Let's bring it on. But then are you going to tell people, oh, I got the Pfizer? Yeah, it's a brand. Sure. It's like getting something at Zara and saying, oh, it's actually Bottega Veneta. The J&J is just one, right? It's one. It's the one shot. Yeah. So I kind of like that just for expediency's sake. It's the M&M one. It's, it's your one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. <laughs> Michael, did you watch the Golden Globes? Uh, I did did i watched part of it i watched and then i got it was it started off so funky and then it got better when with the norman lear present his little speech which brought me to tears i saw emma corn win which made me very happy so and then i got i just like eh, and i didn't watch the whole thing but yes you watched the whole thing you were all in i'm always all in you know usually i have a golden globes or and an oscars party this year obviously not doing either but um yeah i watched it alone and it was fun it, you know it's a weird globes and i hadn't seen a lot of the films which is bizarre because usually i pride myself on seeing everything that's been nominated but there were some really great moments i thought chloe zhao's acceptance speech was wonderful and i know you love nomadland we all did so that was really a, a heartening moment lee isaac chung won for minari best foreign film should we we'll talk about that later in the show actually but um yeah so anyway we have a lot to get to on morning meeting today michael so much is going on tell me so where should we begin ashley you know michael it's all coming down on sunday right this is the harry and megan spectacular with oprah winfrey gail says it's one of her best interviews ever and you know how i feel about gail love her so uh, i trust gail's word on this and i can't wait to watch i've seen a couple of the teasers come out it looks very salacious uh it does look salacious you know what my takeaway from it was tell me the Harry basically has one suit and that's not a problem. I kind of admire it. He basically, if you look at like, he has, he wears this light gray suit and he's worn it like for Archie's christening, I think. Uh, I think he wore it from, and look, I'm all in favor of uniform and it's, maybe it's all like, he's like, you know what? I don't need all these clothes anymore. You can leave, you can leave all that stuff behind. Maybe he just like left with a couple, couple clothes and that was it. And if so, I'd like to know more, but he just, he's wearing the same, the pair appears to be the same light gray suit and um, open shirt. And he's got these sort of uh, caramel colored 
brogues, which he accentuated this time uh, with purple laces. So yeah, he seemed, appears to be a very thrifty, thrifty dresser. That was my takeaway. Should we start calling him Haz? You can. I mean, I just, when I heard Megan call him that on the James Corden show, I'm thinking that could get into so many grammatical issues. Like, has, have you gone to the dentist? Has, haven't <laughs> you done your homework? <laughs> has, haven't you called your mom lately? Like, it just trips me up. Uh, but, you know, Megan does things her own way on her own terms. So you got to love it. It's a term of endearment. Maybe it's part of the has and the has nots. Ooh. Oh my God. Yeah. Michael, getting deep. Now, now that you've left the firm, you know. I don't know. Well, the funny thing is, so did you watch the James Corden interview? Selected pieces of it as it was served up to me in, in chunks. Well, I watched the entire 17-minute thing on YouTube and I love James Corden. He's the guy's so funny. And my favorite part of it, which I think a lot of people missed, was that he and Harry both went to a military-style obstacle course and they quote-unquote competed. Did you get? Did you see that? I did not. Tell me. The guy is super fit. I was shocked. I mean, he's the kind of guy who runs with such confidence and ease that you can tell, like, you could put a 10-mile course in front of him, he would complete it no problem. Like, he's incredibly... You're talking about, you're, you're talking about Harry, not James Corden. No, I'm talking about Harry. <laughs> I just, just want to be clear, you know? It could, it could, that would have been the real surprise, you know? Oh, so funny. And then to top it all off, Harry ends up climbing a rope that's like two stories high, acting like, you know... It was the easiest thing in the world. Meanwhile, I've never once have been able to do that. And it was uh, it was very impressive. So I actually, like, I came away from that respecting and liking Harry more than I thought possible. Well, you know, there's a funny thing about uh, Harry and, and George uh, Caltrucker has, has a funny little item in the issue this week that talk about surprises. But recently in this small town in California, in Taft, California, they showed a, b a bunch of people, the Daily Mail showed people there in small community, uh, you know, a photo of the prince and asked him if they knew who he was, right? And the, the response was a little humbling. So in Taft, California, one of the people said, I think I saw him on a wanted poster. And then another one said, is this one of Donald Trump's kids? And then, of course, someone thought he was a country Western star. But it just goes to show you, you think you're famous, but maybe it's a good thing for Harry. He wants anonymity right? It would help him a little bit. It would absolutely help him. Well, speaking of people who are no longer as anonymous as they once were, we should talk about our friend Walter Isaacson. Yeah, who's got his new book out called I Don't Know. Do you? No, that's not it, Michael. His new book is called The Code Breaker. And it's about a company that specializes in gene editing. It's called CRISPR. Walter is not only known for being a guest on Morning Meeting, but he has also written uh, the biography of Steve Jobs. He's written about the life of Da Vinci. He's written about the life of Ben Franklin. And in this week's issue, we have someone writing about him. And that person would happen to be his wife, Kathy Isaacson, who has been married to him for 35 years. And she has a hysterical take on what it's like to live with this guy when he is immersed in lifestyles of these historical figures. Yeah, it's a, I love this because people are always like, what's it like being married to a writer? Anyway, this is a great column. Um, and it's actually, I think we're going to do more of these, right? Where we have someone's better half writing, you know, an interesting person's better half writing about them. Who wants to hear from the writer? You want to hear about like, you know, you want the gossip of someone who lives with the writer, right? You want the Boswell to the Johnson, right? There you go. What would, what would Brooks say about you, Michael? Oh, you know, it's like I, we recently, I think it was lockdown and we both had to, like, we both said like, why don't we make a list? Five things the other person could improve on. Just like small things around the house. Uh-huh. Boy, that's very, uh, that's, I was going to say woke. That's very modern and thoughtful of you. Well, it, it was her idea, of course. And it was just like, you know, <laughs> so she's like, maybe you could be a little better on the hand towels. I guess I don't fold them back so properly after I 
wipe my hand, dry, dry my hands off. So that's, you know. That's pretty minor. That's pretty minor. Well, I, I'm not going to tell you my worst things, you know. No, Bro- Brooke, we're going to have to get you to write one of these <laughs> columns about Michael. That's when the truth will come out. Oh, yes. My connection's a little fuzzy here. I'm going to have to go, Ashley. Bye-bye. Oh, come on. Stay, stay, <laughs> stay, stay, stay. Okay, Michael, moving on to the all-important topic of French cuisine. We have Alexander Lebrano here to talk about what is going on in Paris with all of these under-the-radar restaurants that keep popping up. Alec is a wonderful critic, a writer, and he also is about to publish his memoir called My Place at the Table, which is all about his adventures in dining and living in Paris. Uh, Welcome, Alec Lebrano. Alec, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So first and foremost, tell us a little bit about where you're at these days and what your life is like. Well, I've been, like a lot of people, my life has been really totally disrupted. I mean, I've been a Parisian for 35 years, but as soon as we were able to travel again last spring, we got in the car and drove south. We have a house outside of Uzez, which is one of the most beautiful little towns in France. It's in the south between Avignon and Nîmes. And until things get better here, it's just a nicer place to be right now. Paris is tough. It breaks my heart to say it, but Paris is a little grim. Whereas down here, it's spacious and it's rural and it's pretty. And for me, what's been fascinating is to have the experience of actually leaving Paris to live in France in the same way that a lot of people in the U.S. have left Boston to live in the Berkshires or New York to live in the Hudson River Valley or Chicago. You know, I mean, this is something these displacements have happened all over the world. In my case, I feel really lucky that I've been able to be displaced, but it's also been fascinating because it's really brought me in touch on a very daily basis with how the French eat Um, outside of a big, wealthy, international city like Paris. It's been a really eye-opening and pretty wonderful experience to be spending most of my time in a little village in the south of France for last year. So have you been enjoying a lot of click and collect or cooking at home or dining out? Oh boy, I think we're all so tired of cooking at this stage of the year. I love to cook, <laughs> but I mean, I think that we're really a year into this. I think everybody's a little bit up to the wall. The best click and collect in Paris right now, are there are two really talented young chefs, Adrien Ferrand and Emery Galin, and they have a new restaurant called uh, Brigade du Tigre, the Brigade of the Tiger. And these guys spend a long time in Asia and they're doing really, really interesting contemporary Franco-Asian cooking, respecting the basic taste constellations of Asian food. Emery lived in Kuala Lumpur for five years, so he really knows it well. And for me, this is exciting because that food comes to the door. It's absolutely delicious. And it's also bringing the message of what's most interesting that's happened in Paris during the lockdown, which is the city's not static. No city's static, especially in a place that's as food obsessed as Paris. And Paris has never been more international than it is today. I mean, you know, we all love the bistros and we all love the bistro food, but the depth and breadth of what's available in Paris today in terms of choices puts the city on the same level as London or New York for the first time ever. And it's really exciting for us here. Well, we're going to talk about your piece in Airmail in just a minute, but this is such a natural segue into your book that's coming out in June. Can you tell us a little bit about Sure. I describe my book, which is called My Place at the Table. And it's my gastronomic coming of age 
tale, which is how does a shy kid from the suburbs, New York suburbs of in Connecticut end up writing, becoming a food critic or a restaurant critic for the French equivalent of the Wall Street Journal. So let's talk about your piece in Airmail this week. You did a marvelous job investigating the trend of the illicitly operating French restaurant. What is going on? Basically where we are right now, I think that aside from food, I think that the deprivation that most of us are feeling here, because, you know, just, just to recap for any who doesn't know this, restaurants shut down last year when the first confinement or quarantine was imposed from late January to March. Then they reopened for a couple of months during the, the summer. Then the virus started to propagate again and they were shut down very abruptly in October. So we've had this sort of bulimic, you know, stop and go thing with restaurants. And what I think we're all missing as much as the food is the, the conviviality and the, the fact the that the fact that every restaurant is a little theater of life. I mean, it's the pleasure of smiling at someone who looks interesting in the other corner of a room. It's hearing other people's laughter. It's the noise of silverware and plates. It's flirting with a waiter. It's, you know, it's everything that a restaurant is. And I think that in our age, where there's very little nightlife left in major cities, I think restaurants are more important venues than they've ever been. Most social life occurs around the table. So to have that amputated has been really, really, really tough. So that's why this speakeasy restaurant scene is flourishing. And as I mentioned, it's not just Paris, it's all over the place. People are missing the restaurants, they're missing the sociability of it. I love this piece because it's the intersection of two things the French do better than anyone, which is food and also illicit behavior. So... Um, <laughs> That's wonderful, Michael. Wait, why do you think I've lived in France for so many years? I mean, you know, it's just as like, they are sensual creatures over there. So, but it's like, and they, and they also love behaving badly behind closed doors. And, you know, it's not just, as you call it, the Epicurean insubordination, but it's, uh, that's why I, as much as we think Paris is quiet, as you paint so beautifully in the pick and the piece, you've got, you know, all this sort of like, I love your, your scene of like, you know, all the shades are all drawn in this restaurant, but if you look closely, there's just a little bit of light coming across that crack between where the, where the shade meets the, the window frame and that's so your sort of little your little beacon in the night that maybe there's a little something special happening in there right exactly yeah, yeah. and that's you know it's interesting because um the one friend i still that i have who was who lived in paris during the during the war who's now lives in London. She's the actress Leslie Caron. But when I was talking to Leslie the other day, she said she'd been back in Paris very quickly for something. And she said, Alec, it's just like Paris feels like it did during World War II. I mean, it was, you know, uh, if you you could smell meat cooking at the end of an alley, you started asking everybody, how do I get through that? You know, how do I get through the red door at the end of the alley? And, you know, Leslie said to me, if I didn't have my Eurostar train back to London in 20 minutes and you knew of a good clandestine restaurant near the garden, to know, I would say, I'd say it's my treat. You know, we did, we, I didn't, and we didn't, but. <laughs> And for the restaurants, again, you know, the, the basic the basic pro forma on these hidden restaurants is that you do have to agree to get a COVID test and to present a negative result. It's very, very, very carefully thought through. Well, we're, we're, Michael and I are certainly hoping we're going to be able to make it your way this summer and that, it, you know, the restrictions will be lifted in some part and we can all enjoy a delightful meal together. I'm looking forward to it very much, Ashley. I trust you to guide us to all things illicit, Alex. <laughs> Well, you're, you're talking to the right person. <laughs> 
Michael, is there anything else we should talk to Alec about? No, you've just made me very hungry and very wistful. I think we're all ready to to sort of taste life again in, in all the ways well, that we I, were. I would also add, Michael, and Ashley, that we really miss you. And I say that as an American in Paris of long date, but the, the, the Parisians desperately miss Americans too. I mean, every time anybody hears my little teeny accent, they think that I'm either Swiss or Belgian. Some people with a fine, more finely tuned ear understand that I'm American. And they'll say, what are you doing here? And where are your friends? Bring, we miss you desperately. <laughs> we didn't realize how much a part of your landscape you Americans actually are. And you are vital to the life of our city and we can't wait to, to welcome you back. All right. On that note, Michael, book the tickets. We'll get a diplomatic visa. We'll be there next week. Look forward to seeing you guys. Thanks. Okay, from the drama of Paris speakeasies, let's move on to the drama of lost Golden Globe dresses. If you watch the Golden Globes, you may have seen Amanda Seyfried wearing a beautiful coral column gown by Oscar de la Renta, but it almost didn't happen. The dress was stuck in FedEx due to the snow and only arrived to her in the nick of time. We have Fernando Garcia here, the co-creative director of Oscar de la Renta, to talk about it. So, Fernando, you guys had a fantastic moment at the Golden Globes. Amanda Seyfried wearing the most exquisite coral gown. How did you do this in the middle of a pandemic? You know, Laura and I are big movie buffs, and I am adamant of following a lot of what happens uh, even before the movies come out meaning reading reviews and, and talking to people in the film industry. It's my first love, the film industry, right? So uh, I texted Elizabeth Stewart the second I started to hear about Mank being released and what an, what an important story this was to tell. So I was like, Elizabeth, I have a feeling, I just have a gut feeling that something's going to go on with, with, uh, with Amanda. So uh, should we start talking now? And this was like back in summer. And Elizabeth was like, well, I, yeah, you're crazy. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. And so as soon as the nominations came out, I was sketching away and I told her, this is what is uh, feasible given the timeline that we have. And what do you think? And do you think we should go um, something that's indicative of old Hollywood glamour that she was representing in that movie? And uh, and we whipped it up within we whipped up the idea within a matter of honestly minutes as soon as the nominations came out. So that's how we came up with it. And then I was fortunate enough to to be able to have a, a fitting with her, which was I think one of my I think that was my second flight ever since pandemic to Savannah, Georgia, where she is right now with her husband and two kids. And I had one great fitting and we talked about what she wants to achieve and we fitted perfectly to her body because it's quite a simple gown in a way. So really it needed to fit flawlessly. And so that's what, uh, that's how we achieve what we achieve. What was it like to release a gown and have a moment like that at a virtual Golden Globes? I mean, how how is this different from the way that you guys usually do award shows? It's invigorating. I think uh, everybody needed a jolt of excitement and glamour in their lives. You know, sweatpants can only go so far, given the year we've had. I was very grateful that uh, Elizabeth reminded everybody of of the power of of a moment like this uh, can have on culture and on people's happiness because it's... um, sort of uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Um, You guys have recently released your fall 2021 collection. Give us your fashion forecast for what we're all going to be wearing when this misery is over. We're very much missing the joy and celebrating glamour. So that's that's what we predict uh, end of the summer is going to be like. We thought about pressed florals as a way of waving goodbye to our summer florals, but I don't know. The reactions seem to be very much like we don't want 
any florals to end this year. I like that sentiment. I mean, Michael and I have been talking about how uh, the minute that we can go outside and like properly enjoy life again, we'll be in black tie the entire time. Well, I think that's really uncomfortable to be black tie the entire time, but I, I think it's time to take a break from sweatpants. So I want to know, give me, give me, tease me about what I'm going to see for the quote unquote red carpet for the Oscars. I think it's um, something that people are now looking more forward to uh, given the year we've had. So um, it's time for everybody to pull out all the stops and and give us as much beauty as possible. I think the world needs it. I'm sure you miss fashion shows, but do you miss having to air kiss all those people backstage? Well, I was talking about that with Laura the other day. I think it's more about um, there's a certain amount of pressure that designers feel and probably any artists really have when when they have a deadline. The deadline represents having to face people that you fear or respect the most, quote unquote. And I do, there was something about at the end of the show, you would have to look at Edward Enenfold's face or Anna and or Nina Garcia and just look at their face. And if you, they, they are, they're very straightforward, honest supporters. And when you see their face of excitement or pure appreciation, like you really, you really know. So, so that amount of pressure does make you become the most creative and the most fearful of, of rejection. So you're, the best work comes out, honestly. Fernanda, thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you all the best leading up to Oscars. And we will be watching you closely. Oh, wow. Well, I better put on something else. Than <laughs> we'll see you soon. Thanks thank again. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Michael. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Do you have anything at all you can recommend to me? I'm going to recommend something that I know you love. So, I mean, it's usually we go back, we ping pong on these things, but we can talk about it because we've both seen it now. Is that Minari? It is Minari. Yay! Okay, wonderful. <laughs> yes. So, uh, we watched it this weekend or past weekend. And of course, the big news is it won Best Foreign Film at the Golden Globes, right? Which is so absurd, by the way. But it's also a beautiful movie. So, tell me why you wanted everyone to watch it. Okay, well... You know, my friend Peter was has been telling me about this for months and I read about the controversy surrounding the fact that it was put into the foreign film category of the Golden Globes. I mean, Lee Isaac Chung, the director, is an American. The cast is largely American. It was written initially in English and then translated to Korean. But because a lot of the dialogue is spoken in Korean, there's some percentage of the dialogue, there's some kind of arcane rule that that made meant that it was that it was placed into the foreign film category for the Golden Globes. And the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is looking like such an antiquated old school institution anyway. And this controversy certainly didn't help its cause. But I'm so glad that this film is out there and getting so many accolades because it richly deserves it. The director, Lee Isaac Chung, is a Korean American. This is a semi-autobiographical take on his experience growing up in the Midwest. In the film, it follows a family of four as they move from California to fulfill the American dream, in a sense. And they, you know, the the husband and wife, the mother and father, earn a living sexing chickens at a poultry processing plant, but they also build a farm and they live in a trailer on their farm and they're trying to make a go of it. And in many senses, Michael, to me, it's so clearly the most optimistic and generous definition of American, right? Like, this is the American dream come to life. Everything about this I thought was so thoughtful and nuanced and the cinematography was beautiful. The art direction was beautiful. The acting was out of this world. Uh, It was one of my favorite films I've seen in several years. I love this film and it 
is an example of me of, I always say, small films can be such big films. And by that, I mean, they tell about us on the surface, a small story. And it's a small story told, I think, really like largely through the boy's eyes, the boy David, who's played by this young boy, Alan Kim, who's so great in it. It's, it's that story of, you know, almost like when you're eight, nine years old and, and there's the summer that everything changed, you know, and it's that kind of movie. It's, it's the summer that this boy, which is obviously kind of a stand-in for the director, moves with his family from their Korean immigrants, as you say, and they end up there in, in, in the middle of Arkansas and how his world just cracks open in these beautiful ways that are always going to define him. And it's, 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 so lovely and got these, as you said, these moments of lovely visual poetry and also great humor. And, you know, all the characters are just so sensitively uh, drawn. You know, you know, if you've got Stephen Yeun from Walking Dead in it. So, as I say, there's nothing small about it, I think, because it operates at that great scale of life. So I loved it. And one of the things that pleasantly surprised me in the film is the way that Chung portrayed the Midwest. We often get a bad rap, Michael, you know, as being backwards and hillbillies. And I'm from Kansas. You're from Illinois. We can say this. Um, In this film, I thought really brought to life the magic of small town America in some ways, in the ways that this family was embraced in part by the community and and found their place within it and encountered some very strange characters, but managed to carve out a life a life for themselves, despite all of the difficulties that they found. Um, I thought it was such a hopeful, you know, inspiring, gorgeous film. And frankly, I'd like to see a sequel because there were a lot of loose ends that are not tied up at the end of it. So bring us maybe another one. Maybe you'll get one. Hopefully, hopefully. I can't wait to see what this director and this talented team of actors does next. Yeah. So look, there we go. We're in agreement. Love it. I love it. So rare for us, Michael. So rare. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got one, you know, speaking of movies and small movies and important movies, Raymond Chatier. He was 101. You may not know him, but you know his photographs. Uh, he died in in France this week, past week. And he, if you've, if you've been a fan of some of these great new wave films of the 60s, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player, or Jules and Jim, you know the images from them, which are often, but you also have seen the photographs. And, uh, many of which weren't even in the film. They were just, he was, he was the original onset photographer. He was, as those guys were shooting in Paris on the streets, defining what the new wave was going to be. He was just hired to hang around, take photographs. And if you've ever seen that great photograph of Jean-Paul Belmondo being kissed on the cheek by Gene Seberg or Jean Moreau and uh, the other guys, uh, Henri Serret and Oscar Werner running across the bridge laughing. Those are all just stolen moments he caught on the set. Um, and they kind of define as much of our image of the new wave as the films themselves. So he died this past week. Lovely. I mean, check out his images online and and I'm sure you have. And just uh, one of those guys who shaped pop culture. Michael, I've been revisiting the French new wave this week through the 2015 series, Call My Agent, which uh, if you have not seen, you absolutely must watch because I know it's kind of a known quantity, but it's a French TV show. It basically follows the CAA of Paris, except the agents are like very stylishly dressed, you know, people tromping around the Rue de Rivoli and their stiletto heels and Isabel Marant jackets. But they have all these fantastic cameos from these grand dames of French cinema. Um, Francoise Fabian and Lynn Renault are in an episode. There's another great one with Cécile de France. Um, it's such a delight to watch. And it, it reminds us that those new wave films are really worthy of are revisiting every so often. Yeah, nice. Let's do it. Let's have a film festival. (laughs) Okay, Michael, until then, let's just start it right now and read us out because we have a long day of movie watching ahead of us. Here's 
Here are the credits reading you out of the film. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining us.